Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and to be able to gather together like this in freedom to worship you through your word and humbly submitting to your spirit. Uh, We're grateful for this opportunity, Father. Help us not be familiar with this thing. We're also immensely grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who made this all possible, that you sent him, that he willingly went to the cross for us, and three days later, he rose again from the grave to seal the victory for all who would trust in him. Father, we ask your blessing to be upon all those listening tonight. Help us listen with humble, open hearts. Help us have a, um, a submission, an attitude of submission as we listen to your word and that as we're convicted by your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in the name of our precious Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Okay, well, part 27. We'll see how many more parts to the series, huh? It's a mystery right now. But um, just some review on Sunday, some, some key points on Sunday and some new passages to visit related to these key points. One of the major points that's been coming up for a while now is that we all should be involved in the Great Commission. That's one of our primary concerns or objectives. And as we gather gather together tonight, this came up on Sunday also, we continue learning God's word and the Lord's ways. That's why this is so valuable. So as you might think you know it all sometimes, or you might think you don't need repetition or whatever's going on, you got to step back and look at the big picture, that God's building something in you, in us, and largely for the purpose of being equipped for the Great Commission in a better and better way. Uh, The things that God is doing within us, we have absolutely no idea. We have absolutely no idea, even when we're feeling like garbage, even when we think we're not um, in tune with the Spirit. We have no idea the things He's doing in our soul and, uh, you know, building us up and creating us, taking us to a place where we're more mature, more like Christ, more of a witness for Him in our actions, and also more able to share the gospel. But that takes time. That takes a lot of molding and shaping and a lot of submission of the clay to the potter. So every time you come here, think about it that way. You're submitting as a piece of clay, hopefully, because it's really a hard issue, right? It's not just being here. But hopefully you're submitting to the Lord as a piece of clay to keep molding you. And no matter how painful it is or no matter how much you don't see the changes in you, it doesn't matter. And one of the big reasons he's doing this is for the Great Commission, so we can be more effective, so we can be um, almost seamless in our evangelism, almost natural. <laughs> you know, you, I'm sure you can look back, think back a few years, maybe, maybe longer, to a point where you were totally uncomfortable giving the gospel or it was forced or, you know, you didn't know what to say so much that you were uncomfortable. And now you might be in a different place. You might be much more comfortable, much more of a second thought, secondhand nature about you because you've been trained in the Word and the Spirit. So that's what he's doing in us, and that's why this learning is so important. So there's a wonderful buildup of wisdom in our souls that takes place when we regularly submit to the Word and the Spirit. Again, it's an attitude of the heart, not just going through the motions. And there's a residual buildup, and this is what I was thinking about as I was reviewing this morning. There's a residual buildup in a positive sense in our souls. And I just, the picture came to my mind, it's not a perfect analogy, but I don't know why it came to my mind. I picture more and more soil being raked up on the top of a hill. More and more soil being raked up on top of a hill. Layers upon layers upon layers. Slowly, you know, integrated over time. And the hill keeps growing and getting richer. And the layers keep building and fortifying. 
And that's kind of what God's doing to our souls over time. And that's why we need the word our whole lives as he shapes us, as he prepares us, as he equips us. Really, ultimately, for his glory and uh, part of that living in the Great Commission. So there's a godly wisdom that is continually added to our souls if we're humble before his word. And years later, we possess a confidence and a hope that exceeds what we could even imagine. So look forward to that. If you're whatever, uh, down about your, yourself, your ability to spread the gospel even, look forward to the fact that God's building a confidence and a hope in you that, that's beyond what you can even picture. And it is a supernatural working, and there's going to be a supernatural result if you stay humble. You know, if you brush it aside and don't stay humble, you're not going to see that supernatural result so much in your life in this world. But if you stay humble, you're going to see it. Because God's sanctifying us. He, he never comes up empty, right? It's never done in vain. He, he accomplishes what he does in us, in those who surrender. So on the board, we've seen a balance statement now a couple times. We're not strictly evangelizing every moment of every day. Rather, our direction is set, and it points to eternal life. True north, as pastor might say. We have our direction, we have our, our, our purpose, we have our understanding of eternal life, and we're going that direction. That's the overall important thing, even though we're not always evangelizing. But we invite others and encourage others to join us in our joy. That's a simple way to look at evangelism. You're, just, you're sharing an invitation. You're on this direction, you're like, come along, like hop in the boat. You, you don't know what you're missing. It's not that complicated. So we're not strictly always evangelizing. That's not what we're supposed to be doing all the time, every moment of every day. However, even though we're not strictly evangelizing all the time, we are to let our light shine every day. Evangelizing through our Christ-like lives of love and forgiveness and virtue. So don't Forget the witness that that is. And that's something that we should just be instead of do. Okay, you can be evangelizing sometimes. You're not always going to be doing that, but you should always be this person. Be like Christ and allow that to do work in those that observe you. And as often has been said from this pulpit, we should never underestimate that people are watching you and they see the fruit of the spirit in those who obey and they might even laugh at it at first and mock it at first but they're watching you and the fruit of the spirit coming out of you and they're going to be drawn to us as part of our witness for Christ we'll talk about that a little bit more later on but this brings us to a main point from Sunday our job as soldiers for Christ is to obey. Pretty simple. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, and 1 John 5, 1 through 4. And true obedience doesn't need all the answers or explanations on why to obey. True obedience trusts the master and obeys his direction. The example came up on Sunday about, you know, talking to the tree. If God says, give, a, give the gospel to this tree, you should just go do it and not question it because it might be someone up in the tree listening, right? You don't know what you don't see. And God sees it all. So the Spirit might direct you, might nudge you to do something that seems odd. Have had that happen? You know it's from Him. You know He's convicting you. He's like, go, go in that direction and go, go, go do that, you know? And then we're not talking about hearing voices in your head. We're talking about conviction in your conscience. God uses the good conscience he's given us. And you know God's pushing you towards this person or this place or this thing. And it seems odd. But just do it. And let him reveal the fruit later. That's, that's faith. And that glorifies God. And there might be someone watching that you don't realize is watching could be a person or an angel. 
So we need to think outside the box. Like, stop rationalizing everything. God tells you to do something that might seem foolish to you or odd or whatever word you want to use. doesn't make sense to you. Why don't we just do it? Is it an arrogance? What is it? I have to know the answer first, God? Well, that doesn't make sense. I must be fabricating this in my soul. You know when God's convicting you towards something. And you just obey. And watch him work. He might want you to look like a fool for some reason. Look at Jesus and the apostles. He might need you to go through that thing for your own growth and for someone else's growth and for the gospel. Who knows? For one person. So turn again to 1 Peter 1, verse 10. 1 Peter 1, 10. Again, our job as soldiers for Christ is simply to obey. The general of the military knows what's going on. And he can't tell you everything. If you're a soldier, your job is to go fulfill the role he asks you to fulfill. Is it realistic to expect the general to tell you everything? It's kind of foolish. 1 Peter 1.10 As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Now, this is the Old Testament prophets. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, us. So there you see, by the way, faith in something that they could not see. They didn't even know there was going to be a church, so-called church, after the Lord came and was resurrected. But they were writing these things down because God told them to write it down, and it seemed odd to them. And people laughed at them. It was revealed to them they they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, now take this personally. This was done for you. It just said this was done All that work in the Old Testament, the prophecies, it was done for us. Therefore, what should we do? Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. So there's obedience again. Just obey. Don't question. There's no reason to question the Lord. Just obey. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober. Fix your hope on Him and His coming. And be obedient. Don't obey the lust you used to obey. Obey the Holy One. Verse 16, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Something that came out on Sunday is that obeying is a beautiful thing. Obedience is beautiful, kind of like repentance. To God, it's beautiful. It's what God's waiting for in his children. And I was thinking about, you know, obedience being a beautiful thing. And the only thing I can liken it to in a visual aid is when a wife humbly chooses to operate in her role and follow and support and serve her husband no matter what. It's, it's a type of beauty And even, maybe it's because it's a show of love, but it's a type of beauty that's actually beyond words, in my opinion. When you you see it, you know it. You recognize it. And it's like, it takes you back a little bit, even because of this world right now. It's not exactly common. But 
That's what I think of when I think of obeying is beautiful. And that's what God wants us to be like as his children. That kind of obedience. I don't question you. I just love you and I trust you. I'm going to do it. And the world won't tell you that this is beautiful, by the way. That they're not going to... They're going to think you're nuts, maybe, even. But it just is beautiful, and it's even hard to explain. If you have a spiritual you know, desire to know the things of God, God will show these things to you. But it's still hard to explain, even sometimes, why it's beautiful. So don't fall for the world's view on obedience. Obedience is a gift from God. And as came out on Sunday, it actually reveals we have a purpose to fulfill in this life. So embrace it. Thank God that you have marching orders. And you know they're true. Go to 1 John 5, verse 1. 1 John 5, 1. Again, the point on the board, our job as soldiers for Christ is to obey. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe His commandments. And uh, for this is the love of for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Uh, think of the loving wife. Think of the obedient wife. His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith. So on the board, obedience fosters a joy for serving, especially the Lord, but also our Lord's sheep, our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, to the flesh, obedience is a chore, but to the spirit, obedience is a joy. And as we humbly submit and learn God's ways and the beauty of such things, these things become more and more a joy. So there's a joy also in knowing you're pleasing your Heavenly Father, just as was Jesus' joy when He was on earth. A lot of His prayers, He was joyful that He was pleasing His Heavenly Father, that He was able to, had the opportunity to please His Heavenly Father. And so we have that same kind of potential joy. As we've been seeing, true humility serves others, not self. And then there's a blessing in humility as well. True humility regards others as more important than self, and it's more blessed to give than to receive. And you see that if you choose to humbly operate in this way, if you choose to believe the word of God and obey it, then you see the fruit, then you see the blessing, then you see the joy. But it's not going to come before that. Just as we derive joy from obeying and pleasing our Heavenly Father, we derive joy from serving one another, from helping others in some way. Because that's how we've been built by God. That's how we've been built. We know, I mean, you have to at least have some times in your life, maybe not everybody, but where you've served somebody or helped somebody that was in a legitimate need and you receive joy and peace from that and that's how we're designed to function every day not eyes on self but eyes on others like that and helping others like that and we're designed to function in that and receive joy from that it's so simple but that's the life of joy God wants us to lead and we still have to work we still have to take care of our responsibilities but how about doing that even for others like the Bible says, when you work, do your work as unto the Lord. If you do it as though you're doing it for Him, directly. Do what you do for others. Do what you do for your family. Have that love as your motivation. And then you have joy. You're not just doing it for the money, for example. You're not doing it for your own praise or gain. If you switch your perspective and do it for others, you start receiving joy. Living in humility brings blessings. That's, that's God's design. 
And then, of course, there are those that lack humility, even in so-called Christian churches that are designed to glorify individuals that walk through the doors, with that being the end of the, the ministry. That's kind of the point to this right here. Is that's the end of the ministry in some churches. Come together for your own gain. You need to be re-energized, whatever. You need to be fed, and then go live your life for yourself. You know, God's here to bless you. People are praised for simply doing as they ought to do, of course, which is uh, wrong, the wrong perspective. So there's a disconnect in some churches, usually because people aren't really learning the Word of God and obeying it. They're not surrendering to the Word of God like most of you are. I say most of you because I don't know your hearts, but you can tell by your lifestyles. But a lot of people don't go to church to surrender to the Word and really listen to the word, like, I need your help, God, kind of attitude. They go because of selfish reasons. The Christian life is not all about self-praise and build-up, although God wants to do that for us in the process. It's about others, particularly those in need, spiritually or physically. That's what we're here to even get equipped for and built up for. But this truth gets lost in many churches. The fact is we've been made born again by grace through faith for God's glory and God's purposes. Right? Not for our own, not for our own gain, not to make the American dream. I have a friend of mine that always says, you know, I got the opportunity to live the American dream. And they don't realize that you're basically saying self first and then God second. Sounds so good. Oh, God's blessing me with this opportunity. Well, let him bless you. Why do you have to make the blessings yourself? Why do you have to be so obsessed with it? Does God want you obsessed with him or obsessed with your blessings or your goals? We're here. We're born again by grace through faith for him in his glory. And on the board, some more perspective. When you look in the mirror... The glory you ought to be looking for is Christ in you. Not whatever it is uh, you've made of yourself. The prior is godly sanctification, the latter is worldly. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Whether, whether you know, physically actually doing it or just thinking about yourself and your perspective of yourself, what do you see? It should be Christ in you, not what you've made of yourself or how you're lacking to make yourself a certain type of person. It should be Christ in you. If you as a believer look in the mirror and see failure, you're not looking at the new you, which is Christ in you. You're not looking at him. You've been deceived looking to your flesh for security and esteem. And we all do it, so don't you know, get condemned. We all do it from time to time. But catch yourself. What do you see when you look in the mirror? As a believer who's surrendered to Christ, you should see Christ in you now. That he forgave you completely and he made you new. And now you can live in that. And that freedom. Instead of bondage to yourself and what you think you should look like. Holy Scripture says you've been made new and the old things have passed away and new things have come. That's 2 Corinthians 5. You might want to go home and read that. You've been made new. The old things have passed away. New things have come. So do you believe that every day? Do you live in that? That's what we should see when we look in the mirror. And on the board, the greatest mirror we've ever been given is the Word of God. Why? Because we can go to it and open it up and look in that mirror and be delivered every single day from the lies of our flesh from that false expectation of self and the thing we, we want to see uh, trying to build ourselves up. So we're so blessed to have the Word because it's the source of freedom. You know, not just eternally speaking, but every single day. 
And that's where you find the true you that God created you to be. Most of us in this room know that. But what's our daily attitude towards the Word? Is our attitude like, I need to open up this book and look in the mirror so I see Christ? Or is our attitude, all right, I'm going to open up the book because I really should do it. I try to read one chapter. Or you go in there with like some desperation in your soul. Do you know what I mean? Humility in your soul. Surrender. Like, God, show me something, please. I'm thinking fleshly right now. I, I need to snap out of this. God's after the heart, right? In everything. So the world and the flesh have given us ungodly expectations and wrong views of what success is. This came out on Sunday also. And and Pastor said in so many words on the board, instead of success being viewed as being a faithful follower of Christ first, and then God will provide you the job and the family and the gifts in life that you need, instead it's presented backwards. I got to go out and gain these things first to be a success. And then I'll have God, I'll be a faithful follower of Christ. So the view of success is wrong, right? The perspective of what is success is wrong. A hundred years ago in this country, 200 years ago in this country, the view of success was if you were a faithful follower of Christ first. That was maybe the norm back then. And now everything's just been twisted by Satan in the kingdom of darkness and, and, and media, you know, being brainwashed by media, etc. But look at the point on the board. What do you consider success in your soul? Some, some of you might say, I'm not very successful. What are you looking at when you say that? You're born again in Christ. Christ lives in you. How can you say you're not very successful? You're basing that on the world's standards. When God's trying to set you free. If you're a Christ follower, I don't care if you're poor panhandling on the street or whatever, you have no life, no family, no whatever that the world esteems. If you're a Christ follower and you're faithful to him every day, that's success. You can't listen to what the world says. That's success. And the angels see that and certain people will see that, not, not all of them for sure, and God sees that. So don't buy the lie of the definition of the world. Think about this. If our kids were first told at a young age that they are children of God and here for his purposes, they would be free from the deceiving pressures of this world to attain things for themselves. Would they not? If children were properly trained from a young age, you're a child of God and you're here for his purposes. Wouldn't everything else be secondary? Wouldn't everything else be not viewed as success, that success is this, not this, right? So, and unfortunately, this goes for adults too in our day and age because a lot of adults haven't followed the Lord, even from youth. But it's back to perspective. Relying on the world always fails. Relying on the world's definitions always fail, even for definitions of success. And as came out on Thursday, faith in self can't withstand pressure. Faith in self can't withstand pressure. You can rely on yourself to build yourself up into something that you consider success or the world considers success so you feel viable or something compared to others, which is the wrong perspective again. Faith in self can't withstand the pressure. You can't hold yourself up that way. Relying on self and one's own plans leads to disappointment in this life. Why do we keep doing it? Why do we keep going back to the well of dirty water? Going back to the flesh. Even just thinking that you're here for yourself, that's a letdown in the end. Another dead end. And as we've been hearing from the Spirit, that leads to depression because you're constantly disappointed in your definition of success. On the board, chances are, if you're depressed, you're too focused on yourself. One of the greatest fruits of self-absorption is depression. 
one of the greatest fruits of self-absorption is depression. However, if you figure it out between you and the Lord, if you figure out how to live for others and you obey that thing, you're going to be blessed. But it's between you and the Lord. You have to figure that out, what it means to you know, live for others, what it means in humility to put others ahead of self. And you have to do it. You have to be willing to actually do it. Until you do it, until you literally put someone else ahead of you in priority and take care of their needs before yours, you're not going to experience the joy and the freedom from self. You're not going to be set free from things like disappointment and depression. You have to do it. You have to actually hear the word of God and keep it. And then you'll see the fruit. There's no way around it. We want his peace and his joy, and yet we want to stay you know, stuck in our own definitions of success for self, our own methods even. On the board, and I believe this came out on Sunday, maybe in different words, instead of being burdened by self, you can be set free by humbly serving others. Aren't you tired of being burdened by self? Like relying on yourself to figure things out or build your own little kingdom? where you'll think you'll be happy, and then you find, when you finally get it, you're still not happy. Instead of being burdened by self, you can be set free right now, tonight even, by humbly serving others. You can have his joy. James 1, 22 through 27. Turn to James 1, 22. God's continually trying to set us free from ourselves. We hold on to the ways of the flesh because we know them. Because we don't want to lose control, maybe. But they're dead ends every single time. James 1.22 But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, where do you find that? In here, right? Open up the mirror and look intently at it. Isn't that an interesting word, intently? Does that mean your heart's involved in it too? Hmm, maybe. The one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. The blessing is from doing the word. And there's no way around it. I'm trying to think of an analogy right now, but I don't want to give you a silly one. But it's like buying a car and not driving it. I own that car. Well, that's wonderful. It doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't do anything for you. You actually have to live in it to experience the blessings of it. So again, verse 25, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And blessed means happy. Verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. There we see doing the word again, don't we? You want to be happy? Do these things. You might need to ask yourself a question right now. Who are you serving right now? I mean, right now in your life, who are you serving? Who has God assigned you to show his love and his compassion or, I don't know, fill in the blank with, the fruit of the Spirit. 
Who has God assigned to you right now in your life? Or is every day all about you? You come to church, you do your duty. You might (laughs) operate in a certain job at the church or whatever. But who has God assigned you to? Who has God assigned to you to put ahead of yourself right now? It's an interesting question. And if we can't answer it, maybe we should ask ourselves, are, are we willing to be this doer? Are we even intently looking at the perfect law, the law of liberty in the first place? In humility. And then obeying it. Because we love God. So maybe start by looking for widows or orphans. If you don't know where to look. Think of children in need. Maybe even single mothers who could use a hand with their children. And by the way, in India, they call those children orphans. Even though they do have a mother, they don't have a father. And the Bible, in some verses, calls orphans fatherless. So just an interesting aside, but think about people that have children that need help with their children. I don't know who God might direct you to, but have you prayed about it? Have you seeked to be a doer of the word in James 1? Think of old folks in your life that might be all alone or suffering through sickness right now. How would you like to be old, unable to walk, suffering from sickness, and having no one to help you? I think about nursing homes. Do you realize almost every single person living in nursing homes is a widow? 98%, dare I say? 95%, I don't know. But if you, if you shop around, if you ask around. And how many nursing homes do we have? This need is huge. It's endless. There's endless amount of widows that God might be calling us to, some of us to other objectives or purposes, yet we sit in front of the TV for hours a day or we serve ourselves somehow each and every day. And not only that, but those in nursing homes are sometimes abandoned by their own children and not paid any attention or given any love. It's no wonder God prioritizes caring for widows. God is after the brokenhearted, and so we should be. And oh, by the way, those are the very souls that are ready to receive the good news of the gospel. And you're wondering how to evangelize. How about just do what the Word of God says with orphans and widows and see what happens, see who opens up, see who asks you about why you're doing this. Why you have any love for them at all? Why do you even care? This brings us back to the Great Commission. Evangelizing is not always found on the mission field or in tent meetings. It's found in serving and building relationships with others, especially those in need. There's a built-in platform for us to share the gospel. Maybe God is bringing someone in your life or in your periphery to their knees right now. But because you're unwilling to do the word, you don't see it. You're not there. They're actually waiting for the gospel, some of these people. Broken, without hope. So if this is our focus, helping others and showing those in need the love of Christ, then you might just find yourself with some pretty easy opportunities to share the gospel. As we were encouraged on Sunday by the Spirit, remember this too, all the weight of the Great Commission is on the Lord's shoulders, not yours, not mine. And I had to learn this as an evangelist too, who used to try to persuade people to believe and put it on myself to convince somebody. But our job is to present the gospel accurately and at the right time. Our job is even to walk away 
at the right time. Only God can convict a soul and change a heart. Amen? Only God can convict a soul and change a heart. I've done it too many times enough now to see that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough of a teacher or a talker or whatever. Only God can convict a soul and change a person's heart. That should relieve us of any false pressure we've been putting on ourselves. And at the same time, this is kind of the message all being blended together. At the same time, we find freedom in living for others and relying on God alone to cause the growth in ourselves and others. We find freedom in living for others. But so many people are depressed because they've been deceived into living for self and keeping their eyes on themselves. And what is that? That's eyes on the wrong mirror. Eyes on the wrong mirror. Eyes on the wrong definition of success of what you should look like or be like when your eyes should be seeing Christ in you. People have been trained indirectly and subtly sometimes by idol after idol in this world, on television, in movies, whatever. Um, But we've been trained that personal success is wealth and power and a certain type of family, and that's what makes you happy. But why do wealthy people often commit suicide or turn to drugs? They have everything they thought they would ever want, and they turn to drugs. Why? Something's missing, right? Something must be, there must be some void. So let that, God forbid, let that not be us as believers in Christ. Let's look in the right mirror with the right attitude. On the board, only intently looking into the mirror of the Word of God and doing it, doing the Word, only that can deliver our souls from such lies and misery. So you can be a believer all you want. You can be saved all you want. If you develop an indifferent attitude towards the Word or an attitude of knowing it all or a lack of humility towards the Word and that God wants to show you something every single day, when we lose that, and we all do it from time to time, we all get into these plateaus and these ruts, but when we look in the wrong mirror or we're not intently looking into the mirror of the Word, we will not be delivered from this self-induced misery from this self-absorption that creates disappointment and depression. So if you're a believer and you're regularly down in the dumps, depressed, feeling like you have no purpose, then you've actually bought a lie. First of all, admit that. You've bought a lie. I do have a purpose. What am I doing? What am I even thinking that way for? Go into the Word. And look at it in humility, in desperation even. Be like, Lord, I need you to show me something today. Again on the board, the Lord is our great physician. While there's no shortage of so-called remedies for mental distress in this world, there's only one final authority on the topic, and that is God. He knows all the answers. And when we go to the Word of God in humility, when we turn to God in humility and surrender, that's our only hope of dropping our self-reliance and our, and our bad definitions of success. Whether an unbeliever or a believer, turning to God in humility and surrender is the only way to be saved or to be delivered from these lies that we bought that we even live in because we look in the wrong mirror. And don't forget, it's the same pattern that God is after before salvation and after salvation. Repentance and faith, turning to God in humility and an attitude of surrender. That brings deliverance because you know what? That allows God to work 
in you. I was thinking about this earlier today. I was driving around. I'm like, what is this like? Like, when you're open, when you actually open up your heart, God's allowed to fill it. I say aloud loosely. Because he's not going to force you or violate your free will. So it's like an open door. If you keep the door closed between you and God and decide to keep trying to do things your own way and you, you hold on to your own agenda and your own definition of success, you're not actually welcoming God in to fill you, to show you the way, how to live in the way. You're not opening up. It's like openness is a key to letting God, what, take over maybe and show you what you're not getting through your thick skull? I should say we. <laughs> but it's not just acknowledging, for example, that God saves man. Okay, you can be here and know the word of God and say, yeah, God saves man, God delivers man. How does that help you unless you turn to him in humility and say, save me or deliver me? It's ineffective in your life. Because it's a heart issue, it's not a mental ascent issue, even in the spiritual life. Our topic of repentance is in view again. So turning to his word in this way, in this same way, will rescue us from the trappings of idolatry and false visions of happiness. Bad definitions of happiness. Again, turning to his word in this way. What way? In humility and surrender. That's going to rescue us from the trappings of idolatry that we've so been trained to hold on to. We don't even realize it sometimes. So we have to ask ourselves, and you know myself too, because sometimes you get in this rut of doing what you should do, and you do it because you should do it without the right heart. Okay, no one's innocent of that, even as a believer. But how many of us turn to God's word with an attitude of surrender? Do you, do you need to lose something big in your life or fall flat on your face to go to God's word again with an attitude of surrender? Do we need to be shown that and that our need? Do we need to be shown how weak we are to do it? Or in humility... Well, we do that voluntarily. We're like, you know what, God? Everything's going good in my life right now, and you're blessing me in a lot of areas. And I really appreciate that. But I need you. I still need you. I know how weak I am. I know how shallow I can be. Show me something in your word today. <laughs> Don't let me lose sight of the desperate need I have of your wisdom. Again, we all fail but let's change our perspective maybe on how we go to the Word, what mirror we're looking into. The Spirit also gave us this on Sunday regarding self-esteem. The world says you derive your self-esteem from self. The Word says you derive your self-esteem from Christ. And whoever you're listening, uh, whoever you're listening right now, uh, I'm sorry, my notes are messed up. Whoever's listening right now, whoever you are, <laughs> honestly ask yourself right now, would you rather rely on yourself for your esteem or would you rather rely on Christ for your esteem? And which one have you been relying on for your esteem, for who you are, how you look at yourself? That's a, that's a big question because if we're honest, we probably have been relying on ourselves at least to some degree, for our esteem. Even though we you know, are believers and we do our best to follow Christ, again, what's the attitude of our heart? So whoever you are listening right now, honestly ask yourself, would you rather rely on self for your esteem or on Christ for your esteem? As a young man on trial in the movie My Cousin Vinny said, I'll take him. Remember that scene? He's got the stuttering lawyer that like, can't say anything and get him off the, the case. He's innocent and everything. And he stands up and says, I'll take him, that guy who can actually make an argument. And that's us 
shouting out for Christ, jumping out of our chair and being like, I can't defend myself. I'm stuttering all over the place. That's going to be a lot of people, unfortunately, when they, when they see the Lord one day. I can't defend myself. Why didn't I turn to Christ when I had the chance? But this is a good picture of us standing in a courtroom on trial for our own sins against God. Who are you going to take for your defense attorney? Who are you going to rely on for self-esteem now? Hopefully you've already surrendered to Christ and <laughs> that in terms of salvation. But who are you going to take now for your self-esteem? Who are you relying on? The stutterer or the holy one that doesn't even need to speak a word? It just shows his scars to defend you. Even a smart unbeliever would choose Christ. But then the question is, is he willing to turn from relying on himself and turn to Christ instead? So again, on the board, the world says you derive your self-esteem from self, but the word says you derive your self-esteem from Christ. Choose and choose wisely. As believers in Christ, we must remember also and claim the fact that we have been buried with Christ in his death. And this is something we have to consider to ourselves, for ourselves. We have to, um, I keep coming up with the word reckon. Reckon it to ourselves. Th that this is a real thing, a re reality in our own lives. The Bible says it and I believe it. I've been buried with Christ in his death. And we're just asking for trouble and asking for depression if we place our worldly expectations in our sinful flesh. God died for our freedom. So why do we keep going back to the vomit of the world and, and our flesh and our own definitions for self-esteem? Stop buying the lie. Enjoy the freedom. Let's go to our Romans 6 as we begin to close. Can't believe I'm almost out of time. Crazy. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. And that's talking about its dominion or its control over us. Okay, it doesn't mean we never sin, but we're not a slave to it anymore. He who has died is freed from sin. We've been made new and given that new nature. So if we're baptized into his death, we ought to identify with that in our own souls. But that's a daily choice. Do you reckon yourself or consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ? The Bible says the one who is born again is victorious and that death has been swallowed up in victory. Do you appropriate these things to yourself? Even though you're unworthy, even though you, you sometimes look at your failures too much and you get preoccupied with what you aren't, forget that. Do you reckon these things to yourself, that he's given you new life, a resurrected life? And it's pretty appropriate with Resurrection Sunday coming up. So think about it this way on the board. We are no longer subject to the old life. 
Our old seed has died with Christ and has been buried. 1 Corinthians 15, if you want to do some good reading on that. I'm going to turn there in a minute. But we're no longer subject to the old life, according to the scriptures. Our old seed has died with Christ and has been buried. So think of a seed for a minute, any little old seed, that's all dried up. The Bible says a seed must die before it's given new life and receives a new body. A brand new supernatural body, by the way. It goes from being a dead, dried up, brown, crusty seed with no life in it. There's no life left in it. It died. Okay? It's not the seed you see in an apple. When you bite the apple, it's still, quote unquote, alive. It's still got juice in it. There's still something in there. It's still something good. Leave it on the table for 30 days. See what it looks like. It dies. It literally dies. And that's when it can be put in the ground and produce a plant or a tree and fruit on the tree. Does it get any more supernatural than that? Like, how familiar are we with this, right? Because we've grown up with it. This is how it works. Does it get any more supernatural than that? Something that's totally dead and puny and has nothing good in it, in itself, can produce fruit. But it has to die first, as Scripture says. So go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35, as we close. And this is all an analogy to the fact that death has been swallowed up in victory. And we have a new life given to us, a resurrected life that we've been given in Christ. But we have to appropriate his life to ourselves in this way. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? You fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. We might say there's dying to self. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, right? You don't plant the body that is to be, you plant the dead body, the bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. But how does it start? Dead, useless, dried up. But we've been buried with Christ. That old disgusting self that we turn to Christ to save us from has been buried with Christ. And now you're a seed that God has given you a new body, even. That'll be for real, like material reality, one day in heaven. But you've been given a new life now. You've been given a new spirit and a new heart. And this new life being in us now is not something he wants us to wait to enjoy. So we'll have to close on that note, but just something to think about. And maybe read 1 Corinthians 15 if you want more good news about that. But again, it's all, it's all like appropriating these things to ourselves. It's all believing these things, these truths, for ourselves and looking in the right mirror. We've got to stop looking at things from a fleshly perspective, especially regarding self-esteem and success. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit guiding us and we ask, Father, for more humility and more of an attitude of surrender, Father, towards you every day. We know we're nothing, and we ask that you help us remember that. Even when things are going good, help us to humbly submit to your word and your spirit every day, knowing that we're just dust without you. But through you and through humility, we can experience this new life you have for us, we can serve others. We can have the joy of being a blessing. Father, help us live the word, as James tells us, so that we can be set free from ourselves and bring you the most glory, Father, which is really why we want to do this thing. 
Father, please bless us all as we go. We ask for traveling mercies as well, and also prayers for all of our family that is sick right now and struggling. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.